Well, good morning. Whether you are here uh, or joining us by uh, one of the media streams, we're glad to be together this morning in one way or the other. Uh, we want to be called to worship this morning uh, with Philippians chapter 2, verses 1 through 11. Uh, sometimes a familiar passage can kind of roll off. If you've heard a passage a number of times, you can sometimes know what it's going to say and maybe not think through it. Let's not, these, these are familiar verses for us um, and critically important, very theological verses for us. But let's hear them again with new ears this morning. Um, it's a very special day. Um, we get to hear from my brother Eric this morning. We'll be preaching. Uh, Pastor Brian is in Texas and Jonathan is in Pennsylvania. Is that right? Is that I hear that right? Was that right? So um, great to have a deep bench. Uh, thanks be to God for that. So let's be called together to worship by his word from uh, our brother Paul. He writes, so if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of of God the Father. So church, with that in our minds and our hearts, let's stand and sing of the accomplished work of Christ. One, two, one, two, three. There is a place, there is a place where justice and mercy flow as an endless stream. Bringing salvation, life and redemption to sinners awaiting in me. At the beautiful, wonderful cross, at the beautiful, wonderful cross, where the King of all glory laid down his life for us. Washed and forgotten by love that has conquered. 
go to the Lord in prayer. Our Father, we come to you because of what our Savior accomplished for us and what he accomplished for all his people throughout all the ages, namely our salvation. There's nothing we can add to it. There's nothing we can take away from it. And we have no glory in it other than to point to you and what Christ, our Savior, and our High Priest, and our sacrifice has done for us. Where the King of all glory laid down his life, that one who took upon human flesh, the eternal begotten Son of God. O oh, mystery of mysteries, that you would send your Son in the likeness of human flesh. Father, I pray that we as your people never tire of hearing about that. I pray that we would never grow weary of worshiping you for it, that we would never lose the marvel and the wonder of what you have done for your people in your Son. And yet, Lord, even this morning as we come to you and we celebrate the salvation that is ours, as we come to hear the word as it is read and spoken and as it is preached, as it is sung, Lord, our city, our nation is broken, and we come to you and pray that you would bring peace. Lord, more than anything, we need a change of human heart in this country. We need a change of heart in this city, one by one, a work of your spirit where you regenerate the lost and you reconcile the sinner to yourself. And I pray that we would not grow weary of declaring that message, of sharing that message. But we pray, Father, you would do the work of peace that only you can do. Tearing down racial divisions and bringing us together as the one people of God. Our brother John writes in Revelation where he sees this majestic vision of every nation, tribe, and tongue. Not a single colored people, not a single shaped people, but yet your people expressing your creative work in all manners. And so we want to live into that, pray towards that, but know that there is nothing in our strength that we can do to regenerate the human heart. It is a work that only you can do. And we pray that you would. We pray that you would bring revival to our city, a true awakening to those who are lost, we pray right now for our leaders, uh, as we're commanded to do in Scripture, that you would give them wisdom, that they would have a Godward wisdom that begins with the fear of the Lord and would lead your people uh, justly and rightly according to what is true and what is right. Help us to be a people of the book who love and treasure Christ above all things. As we read a few moments ago from, from Philippians, that we would put others' needs in front of our own, both in the body of Christ here and then outside as well. Lord, fill this time with your presence. Fill us with your spirit. And out of the overflow of grateful hearts, Lord, we want to sing and we want to worship and we want to delight in what Christ has accomplished for us. And so we come to you, our triune God, and we say thank you and turn our attention and our affections and every inclination of our heart towards you this morning. Help us to do that by your spirit this morning, we pray.
We ask these things through Christ. Amen. Church, let's continue to, to worship this morning. We'll sing a wonderful hymn, Jesus Paid It All. Go ahead. Yeah, y'all can stand. I hear the Savior say, I hear the Savior say, Thy strength indeed is small. Child of weakness, watch and pray. Find in me thine all in all. Jesus paid it all, all to him I owe. Sin had left a crimson stain, he washed in white as
Lord reigns, let the earth rejoice. Let the many coastlands be glad. Clouds and thick darkness are all around him. Righteousness and justice are the foundation of his throne. Fire goes before him and burns up his adversaries all around. His lightnings light up the world. The earth sees and trembles. The mountains melt like wax before the Lord, before the Lord of all the earth. The heavens proclaim his righteousness, and all the peoples see his glory. All worshipers of images are put to shame, who make their boast in worthless idols. Worship him, all you gods. Zion hears and is glad, and the daughters of Judah rejoice because of your judgments, O Lord. For you, O Lord, are most high over all the earth. You are exalted far above all gods. O great God of highest heaven, occupy my lonely heart. Own it all and reign supreme. Conquer every rebel power. Let no vice or sin remain that resist your holy war. You have loved and purchased me. Make me yours forevermore. I was blind. Father, we come to you this morning once again, not by any righteousness of our own, but robed with and clothed in 
the righteousness of our Savior, an imputed righteousness, an alien righteousness, one that is not our own, the very righteousness of God, which is the only kind of righteousness that will satisfy the all-righteous and all-holy God, as we've just sung. O great God of highest heaven, and yet you have condescended to occupy lowly hearts. And so we pray that you would find in each of us a lowly, humble heart this morning as we come to the apex of this service, which is when your word is preached. So fill our brother Eric with your spirit. Give us ears to hear. Give us eyes that see. And Father, if there are those here or watching or will watch that do not know Christ, we pray that today would be the day of salvation, that they too would experience the great exchange of our sin for Christ's righteousness, their sin for the very righteousness of the Son of God. When you look at us seeing not sinners, but seeing sons and daughters, who you gather to yourself and around your table from the four corners of the earth, all to the glory of your great name. As we sung, you are worthy to be praised with our every thought indeed. O oh, great God of highest heaven, right now in these moments, glorify your name through me. Do that in each of us this morning. Have your way. May your spirit move. We, we receive and we claim the promise that your word never returns void. And so, amen and amen. We give you thanks and we pray all of these things through Christ. Amen. You can be seated. Amen. Thank you, Barry. Worship team for helping us to shake off the concerns of the week past and the pressures of the week to come. Good morning, beloved. Good to see you this morning. It's such a pleasure to be with you in what are strange and difficult times. And uh, I, I shared with Bill and Barry both this morning that one of the most difficult things for me will be to keep myself planted right here. I have a tendency to wonder and go up here and over here and talk to you. I've got to keep myself planted uh, for the sake of the camera. Uh, so pray for me that I can do that. And if you see me wonder, just do this. Give me, give me the sign. Uh, but speaking of strange and difficult times, um, you know, I think there is no more beneficial exercise for the church this morning for, than for us to be reminded of who we are in Christ. Reminded that we are a people called together under the banner of his grace. And that means something very specific and has very real and practical implications for how it is that we navigate life, how we walk as we go through difficulty and differing circumstances. Um, you know, thinking about the collective us, one thing that Scripture makes very clear is that the church is not a means to an end. It is the end in and of itself. It is described by God in the passage we will look at today as his very own possession. It is indeed the bride of Christ for whom he died, and it will be finally and fully the great multitude from every tribe, language, people, and nation. And I think looking at this passage this morning, which, by the way, is 
1 Peter 2, 9 and 10. I think that looking at this passage this morning will serve as a timely reminder for us for how it is we are to live in difficult times. Because here's what has become very clear to me over the past couple of months. What is under attack in a very targeted way in the church, not to mention the rest of the world, but here's what I'm concerned about this morning. What is under attack in a very targeted way is unity. Church unity. Jesus died for the sake of unity. We need to remember that. He died that we would be united to him by grace through faith and as a consequence, united to one another. When you read his high priestly prayer in John 17, specifically verses 20 and 21, you see that this was his great desire from the beginning, that we would be one. So we cannot talk about, and just give me this for a moment, we cannot talk about having a robust, reformed, biblical theology if we are not ferociously committed to unity. You cannot take that out of the equation and your theology hold up under any weight. So here's what we consider today. The strong current, here's what I want you to see, that flows just beneath the surface of this passage that we will look at today is the issue of sight. It's the issue of seeing, seeing things as we are meant to see them, which will answer the question for us, what are we set free to do in the church? And indeed, one of the realities that flows beneath all of Scripture, just under the surface, is this issue of sight. Of God's people being given spiritual sight in order to see things as they really are. As we could otherwise never see them before. And having sight, being set free to live in such a way that God's grace and mercy is put on display. And that issue should become very clear as we work through the passage this morning. So the Christian's been given the ability to see things very differently than the way the world sees them. It's precisely because of our radical line of sight that we've been given that we're able to truly live as we ought to. Consider, consider Jesus' conversation with Nicodemus in John chapter 3. When Nicodemus comes to him at night and says, Rabbi, we know that you're a teacher sent from God because no man could do the things that you do unless God were with him. And how does Jesus answer him with this very issue? He says, truly I say to you, you cannot see the kingdom of God unless you were born again. And we tend to see that and think, well, he's just talking about you won't be there. And that may be some of it, but it's so much more. What he's saying is you will never perceive the kings of God and the things of spiritual significance without being born again. You cannot perceive it. That issue is so important for us to remember this morning, beloved. Because here's the issue. Not only is our faith on display in the mundane things of life, which, we, is, which is where we live the vast majority of life. But our faith is on peculiar display in times of difficulty and uncertainty. So why do we check our understanding of and our comfort in God's meticulous sovereignty at the door when his providence becomes painful or even uncomfortable for us? And I... And believe me, I don't, I don't escape the implication of this text. I'm talking about myself. I do that on the regular. I tend to start to question things. And here's the evidence. 
When we begin to complain and grumble about things we feel are owed to us in some way or in some way we're supposed to have and begin to disparage those who disagree with us regardless of where you fall, that's an issue of losing sight. It's an issue of not seeing things as they really are. And that's what I've seen in myself and I've seen in the church at large. This is a very important issue for us. And you say, well, Eric, how does the issue of sight connect to this issue of unity? I'm glad you asked. Listen to what John says. This this is the the verse that's on the, the cover of the bulletin. I know you just have a digital copy, but this is the verse that's on the cover of the bulletin. 1 John 2, 9 and 11. Listen to what he's saying here. And see if it doesn't if it doesn't flow with my argument that we're going to get to. John says, whoever says he is in the light and hates his brother is still in darkness. Now, this is an issue, again, of seeing. Light and darkness here are about our ability to see and to live life. Because he says this, whoever loves his brother abides in the light, and in him there is no cause for stumbling. So see here, it's an issue of walking, living. But whoever hates his brother is in the darkness and walks in the darkness and does not know where he is going because the darkness has blinded his eyes. So our ability to see will be evidenced in how we love each other. Do we get that? How we love one another will show whether or not we see as we're supposed to. Now, as we look at the passage today, here's what I want you to see. There's a scaffolding, a three-part scaffolding. Of course, in a sermon, it's always three parts, right? Here it is. As we work through 1 Peter 2, 9 and 11, it's this. First of all, the first level of the scaffolding is you are. Speaking to the church, you are. The second level is that you may. And the third level is because God has done something. So, in other words, by grace, we are something that we might engage in something, all because God has done something in us. And again, I would argue what gives this scaffolding meaning and weight is the issue of sight. It is because of the central truth of this passage that we are set free to do something. Now, please hear me clearly. The gospel is not foundationally and fundamentally about us doing anything. It is primarily about what God has done for us in Jesus Christ the Son. But because he has done something for us, we will do certain things. You live. You engage with people. So we will do that in a peculiar way. Why? Because we see peculiar things. Because of the sight we've been given. So I'm going to read verses 6 through 10 just to give us a little context here. And we'll talk more about Peter's context. But 1 Peter 2, starting in verse 6, this is what Peter records for us. For it stands in Scripture, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone chosen and precious. And whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. So the honor is for you who believe. But for those who do not believe, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. And a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. They stumble because they disobey the word as they were destined to do. Watch this. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession. That you may proclaim the excellencies of him who has called you out of darkness. Here it is. Into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. 
Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. So the, the context of Peter's entire letter here is that he is encouraging persecuted believers who have been scattered through the region of Asia Minor. So a major part of why Peter wrote this is to remind them of how they are to live in a broken world that does not bend to their will. Does that sound familiar? Do you find yourself in that place? So here's our first level. You are. The first part of verse 9. So Peter reminds them of who they are over and against those who have rejected Christ. That was in verses 7 and 8. And in so doing, he gives a good foundation for us to begin to understand how it is we live. In verse 9, he mentions four things that begin to define for us the church. But he says, but you. This, this is a vital conjunction here. It is comparison by way of emphasis. Over and against those who have rejected Christ, those who have disobeyed the word and stumbled, here is you, beloved. And I want you to notice, in Peter's argument, before you do comes you are. That's vitally important. Don't seek to accomplish the you do before you understand who you are. Because that's the power to do. So by stating you are there in verse 9, we understand he's, he's talking to a very specific group of people. The people identified in the first two verses of this letter when he says this. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ to those who reside as aliens, scattered throughout Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, who are chosen. According to the foreknowledge of God the Father by the sanctifying work of the Spirit to obey Jesus Christ and be sprinkled with his blood. So, that's a very specific group of people. These are true believers, and these are in contrast to those he mentioned in verses 7 and 8. And it's very important that we note, he gives four identifiers here for them. This group of people, he says, you are these four things. And it's important that we understand that Peter is applying things said specifically about the nation of Israel. Everything he says here, these four things you can find in Deuteronomy 10.5 and Exodus 19.5 and 6. Which is very significant. And note first, he says this. Who we are, and we're, we're going to go quickly through these four because they support the main argument. Number one, who we are has everything to do with God's grace. The first thing he says is you are a chosen race. And Peter's already used this word in the opening of this letter, identifying his audience. So Peter's understanding of salvation was that it was all of God and none of man. That man in his sinful state would reject the gospel, spurn God without the interposing of sovereign grace. Applied by the Holy Spirit, resulting in obedience to Christ's call to repent and believe the gospel. Beloved, this is meant to foster, get this, humility in us. Think about that for a second. And how, how we handle things that come our way. And this, this hits me right between the eyes. Because I'm one of the least humble people you will ever meet. I, I, can, I can put on that air. But here it twists. I'm about me a lot of the time. Ask my wife. Humility. If we operated and saw with eyes that were humble, what difference would it make? 
When God has undertaken to save us in Christ, the evidence of God's grace is in our lives. Listen to what Paul said in 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, verses 4 through 10. He says this. In verse 4, he says, speaking to the Thessalonians, he says, Knowing, brethren, beloved by God, his choice of you. Now, how does he know that? How does he know that these are the chosen of God? Well, he, he gives, he lays it out here. For our gospel did not come to you in word only, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit with full conviction. Just as you know what kind of men we proved to be among you for your sake, you also became imitators of us and of the Lord, having rejoiced, with, uh, having rejoiced, received the word in much tribulation with the joy of the Holy Spirit, so that you became an example to all believers in Macedonia and Achaia. For the word of the Lord has sounded forth from you, not only in Macedonia and Achaia, but also in every place your faith has gone, faith toward God has gone forth, so that we have no need to say anything. For they themselves report about us what kind of reception we had with you, and how you turned from God to idols to serve, or how you turned to God from idols to serve the living God, and to wait for his Son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, that is Jesus, who rescues us from the wrath to come. Paul lays out very clear, measurable, observable, practical things in their lives that demonstrate God's grace. But unfortunately, what we tend to do is add to that list. We tend to put non-essential things in place that we want to see in a person's life before we will say, now that's a believer. Paul makes it very clear that God's grace is evident in how you see and walk and live. The church will first be a group of people who show evidence of God's grace in their lives. Second, who we are is everything to do with, with God's service. Notice he says royal priesthood. This is a vivid, for, for the Hebrews it would have been among the readers here, this is a vivid picture for them, a royal priesthood. And we, do, we do well to understand that the office of priesthood assumes, the only reason it exists, it assumes that there is a breach between God and man. Which starts to inform us what he means here. Now, Paul, Peter's not saying that we are to take up the mantle of a Levitical priest and start to do things in a sacrificial way. But he's saying your entire life is approaching God through the sacrifice of Christ. Also interceding on behalf of others. Also working and giving offerings of praise and worship to him. That you function in that way as you live. Because you are royal priesthood approaching God the Father through the blood of Christ, with great joy, showing his grace and glory by your good works. But also this, I told you you're going to go fast through these. Yeah, who we are has everything to do with God's measure. What do I mean by measure? The next thing he says is you're a holy nation. Everything Peter has said up to this point in these things, the nouns he has used, they're, they're highlighting the separate nature of the church being called out of the world, belonging to God. And here he emphasizes it even more by using that word holy. You are a holy nation. You know, if you were asked the people, people outside of these walls, perhaps, what they think of when they hear the word holy, um, it might not be the best definition or the best uh, train of thought. I mean, it's often used in a disparaging way. It's used to qualify expletives a lot. But Peter uses it here to remind us that this people gathering together under a common creed as nation applies 
is to be utterly separate in their behavior, values, and pursuits. In fact, we are to be like God himself, which Peter points out in, in verses 15 and 16 of chapter 1 of this letter. He says, but like the Holy One who called you, be holy yourselves also in all your behavior. Because it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. Quoting Leviticus 19 too. This, this is the imperative, be holy in all your behavior, that points to the indicative. You shall be holy because God is holy. His people will be holy. And then finally, the thing he says here, who we are has everything to do with God's glory. He says, a people for God's own possession. The last thing Peter mentions here is that to remind us the church does not belong to itself. It is not self-actualizing. It is not self-directing. It does not seek to please anyone other than the one who has laid claim to her by his own blood. 18th century theologian Jonathan Edwards wrote a little book. I say little. It, for him, is little. The End for Which God Created the World. I don't even know if it would be considered a book as much as it would be a writing. But he takes a hundred or so pages to demonstrate that every single thing that God undertakes to do, from creation to new creation, is for the display of his glory. So if we are God's own possession, a people for his own possession, you can mark it down that everything he does, everything he leads his people through, will be, in the end, for his glory and consequent to that is that it will be for our everlasting joy and eternal good you can mark it down this is how he operates so the church is a people who exist for god's glory not to experience comfort or ease or freedom from trial and hardship but we will be a people who sees that everything we experience will be for the exaltation of his name among the nations that's what we're about. So what does all this look like when it hits the pavement? So Peter has told them these things precisely because they're suffering. It, he's reminding them of who they are to give them perspective on how to live during difficult times. But what is staggering is that Peter states, all of these things are done that we may do something. So the second rung of this scaffolding is this, that you may. So the second half of verse 9, here's the central issue of sight. When you read this, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who's called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. When we read this, we may think immediately of verbal proclamation. And we sort of lay at the feet of this, engaging in evangelism. It, hear me clearly. It is that. It's not less than that, but it is so much more than that. That's where it starts. The word proclaim does indicate a broadcasting of some information. But is it everything, is that everything that Peter intended here? Just to, to verbally speak of what has happened to us in Christ, which is extremely important and we need to be about. I don't think that's all he's talking about. I think what Peter's referring to here is much harder. It requires much more of us. It requires more than just my speech. It requires more than just my speech when I'm engaged with an unbeliever. It requires every moment of my life 
in every context I find myself in, whether it's work, home, Home Depot, wherever it may be. It requires everything. So look at what he says. And I make that argument because of this. It, it's not less than that, but it's so much more precisely because of what he says has happened to us. He says that you may proclaim the excellencies of him. Again, proclamation, broadcasting information. But he says, who has called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. The implication here is that now you can see. You're free to proclaim because now you can see where you're walking. Now you can see what God is truly doing to the degree by grace he allows you to see what he's truly doing in the world for his own glory. So darkness and light are things that affect our ability to see. And it's not just any light, is it? He says it is a marvelous light, brilliant and illuminating. So light in scripture is associated with the knowledge of something, understanding something. So if we've been called out of spiritual ignorance into spiritual insight and knowledge, what does that light reveal to us that we now enjoy? Remember I said earlier that this issue of being able to see is, is an issue that flows underneath all of scripture. Listen to these verses. Isaiah 42, 16. I will lead the blind by a road they do not know. By paths that they have not known, I will guide them. I will turn the darkness before them into light, the rough places into level ground. These are the things I will do, and I will not forsake them. What are you talking about there? They will be able to walk and not stumble. In other words, they'll be able to see and live and glorify me. Isaiah 9, 2. You know this one well. We, 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 we hear this every Christmas, don't we? It's beautiful. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, light has shone upon them. And Jesus, in John 8, 12. Again, Jesus spoke to them saying, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness. There it is but will have the light of life. They can see. 2 Corinthians 4, 4, Paul says this. In their case, speaking of unbelievers, the God of this world has blinded the minds of unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. Now, I'm not arguing that the gospel is an issue of sight. It's an issue of the heart. But what, what's amazing is that a new heart gives us open eyes. That's the point here. Well, Peter uses this imagery to point to the fact that those in the church see radically different than unbelievers. Everything is seen through the lens of the gospel. Everything. Now think about that for a moment. You think about, I mean, 2020 has been a rough year, has it not? You can amen that one. I mean, that's, that's decidedly evident. It's been a rough year. And, and maybe even specifically the past couple of months, and even more specific to that, the past week or so. But I want you to understand, beloved, as we as the church should be on the front line of these issues, that you view everything through the lens of the gospel of Jesus Christ. You want to know what the answer is to all of the things we deal with. The answer in its entirety, the answer plus nothing, is the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's what fixes it. 
period. And we've got to have that vision, that dogged commitment to that truth. So we can now see the excellencies, and we want to proclaim with our lives the excellencies of him who has called us, given us light to see. Just like the blind beggar that Jesus healed in John 9, he immediately began to, what did he say? Tell us whether this man was a sinner. I don't know whether or not he was a sinner, but here's what I do know. I once was blind, now I see. I think the implication is much bigger than just, I I can see the dirt in people around me now. He sees Jesus for who he is, doesn't he? He begins to live life by proclamation and proclamation by action. Everything. So here's my point for us, beloved. We need to see everything differently because of Jesus. I mean, my wife, my children, my job, my neighbor, my sickness, my health, my hobbies, my appetite, my joy, my pain, my sorrow, everything becomes now to me a means by which I may proclaim the excellencies of Jesus Christ. It becomes a canvas for me to display who he is and what he has done. And do I do it perfectly? No. Ask those around me. Ask those who know me best. But the constant push in me is to display him accurately. To show the world that I can see. That I know one who has given me sight. That I would say with that blind man, there are a lot of things I don't know, but here's what I do know. I once was blind, but now I can see. So when things are not easy or normal, do we start to walk around as blind men and women? And the question, obviously, if there's proclamation with word and life, who is the message for? I mean, it it seems evident who the message is for. Somebody's getting this information. And listen to just a couple verses here. These are just ways of reminder to us. Psalm 96.2, sing to the Lord, bless his name, proclaim, there's that word, good tidings of his salvation from day to day. And you know why I would tie and keep saying, when you read the word proclaim, make sure you understand it is more than just verbal proclamation, because your verbal proclamation means nothing without your physical behavior. You know how many times my message has been discredited because of things I do that may not line up with things I say? Colossians 4, 5, and 6. Conduct yourselves with wisdom toward outsiders. What's he talking about there? Paul's referring to those who are not in the church. They're not part of that peculiar group of people. Making the most of the opportunity, let your speech always be with grace as seasoned with salt. So Paul clearly ties in that verse, walking and speaking. Not separating the two. So the message, the proclamation is for the world to see and to hear. It is intended to announce the grace and glory to all of humanity, of God to all of humanity, that they may embrace this God and give him the glory that's rightfully his. Peter uses these words excellencies and marvelous light. And what that implies to me, the only time I I seem to use excellent and marvelous is when I'm eating something my wife has made. That was that was marvelous. I, I don't use the word marvelous, but something synonymous to it. But I will say, that was excellent. Gosh, that was excellent. 
What I'm implying is I was, I'm deeply satisfied that that was exactly what I needed. I was hungry, and that hit the mark. And I want nothing else. Matter of fact, I can't eat another bite. This is what Peter's getting at here. This is a marvelous light that God is excellent in his glory. So we are deeply satisfied in him. That when things become rough, Jesus is enough. I'm not trying to rhyme there. That sounds, I, don't, I hate rhyme. It sounds corny. That was not intentional. But Jesus is enough because he's excellent. He's marvelous. He satisfies at the deepest level. So this is a change that moves us from frustration to exultation. Now, the third rung on this scaffolding is this. Because God has. You are these things that you may do this because God has done something in you. In verse 10. So this, this explains how it is we came to, to be able to see. So, first of all, he deals with the issue of people. He says, for you were not a people. So Peter draws a very clear line between who these people were before they were in the church and who they are now that they are in the church. So he makes it clear in this verse. Number one, they were not God's people and they were not under mercy but under wrath. So there was a time with this entire group of people, and by the way, you and I were outside of God's possession and mercy. We were not what we are now by grace. Remember that. Now, this tells us a couple of very, very important things. And again, keeping in context, walking in difficulty. The first thing it tells us is this. These people, including you and I, were not born naturally into the church. They were not told by mom and dad, hey, mom and dad, go to Fisherville Baptist, we're Christians, and guess what? You are too. I don't think anybody here believes that. But, but listen, it's one thing for us to understand that, but quite another one to go, you know, people are brought into the body of Christ supernaturally. Regardless of history, family background, every one of us was outside of God's people until something happened. And the second thing it tells us is this. It completely rebuts the idea that we have to or even can get our act together to clean up ourselves before we become a part of the church. It makes plain that the issue on the front end is not a, get this, is not a change of behavior, but a receiving of mercy. Because we can't change our behavior. You know well, as well as I do that that is it's a futile effort apart from grace. So yes, these people are in the church. And we sitting here today who've come to Christ in repentance and faith are in the church. But we weren't born into the church naturally. We were supernaturally born into the church. We didn't have enough fortitude to, to get our act together to please God. Quite the opposite. But in both cases, Peter's implying a radical, God-initiated, God-affected change that took place in the lives of these people to move them out of what they were into the, the position they now find themselves in. And here it is. There are people, but next, people belonging to God. Here's the good news Peter gives them. 
always remember. He says, but now you are the people of God. And the reason Peter says that, that should be staggering to us. If we understand what we were at one time and now consider the reality that now we are the people of God, we should never get over that. Ever. You are the people of God. He says, a people for God's own possession. And so we have to look at the but now. Because again, you can, if, that were, if this verse were isolated and this were all you were given, we may be tempted to think that we did something to achieve the but now. You did this, now here's where you are. But Peter says, but now, implying that it is God that has done something. He makes this clear in the opening remarks of this letter. If there's any doubt, hear verse 3 of chapter 1. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his great mercy, and that's going to come up in just a second, has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. In mercy, he caused us to be born again. Listen, and listen to how the Apostle Paul says this exact same thing in Ephesians chapter 2. He makes this exact argument, using different words, but it's the same. He says, And you were dead in your trespasses and sins, in which you formerly walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, of the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience. In other words, you were not the people of God. That's what he's saying here. Among them, we too all formerly lived in the lust of the flesh, indulging in the desires of the flesh and of the mind, were by nature children of wrath as the rest. In other words, you had not received mercy. And he says this, but God. I always say when I get to that verse, that's a big but. It's a huge conjunction. It makes all the difference. being rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our transgressions, made us alive. There it is. Caused. Made. Made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. People for God's own possession. And then he says this. We're a people who have received mercy. But now, you have received Mercy. Mercy is at the heart of everything that God has done for us here, that we are set free to proclaim his glory with our lives. Why do we, here's the question. Why do we need mercy? And what is the basis of this mercy? This is so important. You're here today or you're watching. There are no greater questions to consider than this right here. Why is it we need mercy? When you define mercy, we find it to be a withholding of punishment that is justly deserved. It is withholding that which is due to us. So, why do we deserve punishment? Because we're sinners. We know that by experience and because Scripture makes it very clear. Romans 3.23, for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And our sin is not something that occurs in a vacuum, which is the popular way to look at it. But it is sin and defined as sin because it is against a holy God. The very essence of sin is that we have rejected God's rightful place in our lives and strive to be our own God, 
to step into the place reserved for God himself and rule our lives and consequently the lives of others from that position. So, if you're to be among God's people, you must receive mercy. And what is the basis of that mercy? It is the free and unmerited love of God demonstrated in the shed blood of Jesus Christ, which he purchased his church with. He purchased the mercy that we desperately need. Ephesians 2, 4, we just read it. But God being rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us. It's a particular love. Hebrews 9, 22, we're reminded, according to the law, one may almost say that all things are cleansed with blood and without the shedding of blood there is no forgiveness of sin. No mercy is possible without the shedding of blood. So remember our scaffolding. We are something. That we may do something. That we may be about something. Because God has done something in us. And the central point is built on the fact that now we have gospel vision. Even the great hymn writers understood this great truth. One of my favorite hymns and one of my daughter's favorite hymns, Be Thou My Vision. Be Thou My Vision, O Lord of My Heart. One that's very familiar to all of us, Amazing Grace. Once was lost, but now I'm found. Twas blind, but now I see. And in the more recent years, through the ministry of Sovereign Grace, a hymn we sing here, I once was lost in darkest night, yet I yet thought I knew the way. The sin that promised joy and life had led me to the grave. He goes on to tell us that we've been given sight. So here's how I want to close today. Just with a couple of things of application. Because remember, the entirety of, of us considering that we can actually see things that the world can't see. That this is gospel evidence to us. That it's seen in how we love one another is this issue. Unity. I said at the beginning that the thing that has concerned me the greatest over the past chunk of time is church unity. Understand, I've seen it at the congregational level. I see it at the institutional level. When I say institutional, I mean our institutions of higher education. It is being attacked. And that is by design. The enemy is on the move. So here's what I want to leave you with this morning. Three things for you to consider that I hope will be practical application for you and with each one of these there's a scripture that i want you to i'm not going to read the scripture i'm just going to give you the reference and you read that prayerfully this week number one is this unity is something the spirit creates but that we are commanded to guard and maintain that's ephesians 4 1 through 3 paul tells us very clearly Paul tells us very clearly to maintain the unity of the Spirit. We can't create it. 
This is a supernatural unity we enjoy. The second thing is this. Unity does not mean sameness. That's extremely important. You will be disheartened and frustrated if you live under the assumption that unity within the church means that everybody is to look and act a certain way. Even if it's, i got to look and act like the pastor or look and act like... Unity does not equal sameness. It it takes, I've said this before, it does not take grace for a group of people this size to look and act like Eric Fields. I would get on my own nerves for sure. But it doesn't display God's grace when everybody looks and acts like me. When everybody has the same interests, hobbies, tastes, perspectives, giftings. That does not take grace. What takes grace and what displays the marvelous grace of God is Him bringing together from every tribe, people, language, and nation who have vastly different backgrounds and interests, yet they love one another. It should be given that anybody in this room could sit down at the table and fellowship over a meal and absolutely love it, regardless of where you've been, what you've done, what your perspective is on any other... If you are in Christ, you are united to one another. And you won't be the same. The third thing is this. Unity rarely has little, if anything, to do with the other person or people. I think, you know, Barry and I didn't even talk about this morning. You read Philippians 2, 1 through 8, and that's my reference for you. I think implied in that passage because it is giving us the heart of Christ to achieve unity between he and his people had very little to do with those people. It had everything to do with what he did. And that's given by Paul as an example for us to live. Have this mind in you which was also in Christ Jesus. I've come to find that unity between me and any other person rarely has anything to do with that other person. It has everything to do with what I refuse to let go of. And the rights that I refuse to lay down as the gospel demonstrates for the sake of the other person. I leave you with a question before we pray. And it's very simple. What do you see? Beloved, what do you see? Do you recognize in your life, now in Christ, a very different vision than before you were in Jesus by grace? Do you see? I I remember as a 19-year-old young man, I can say that's young now, Having come to Christ in repentance and faith, I was absolutely staggered by how differently everything looked to me. I don't mean physically looked. My perspective on everything from creation 
to other people, to the gifts of common grace, which I wouldn't have called them that at the time. I didn't know what that meant. But how radically my sight changed. But even having said that, if I don't demonstrate that I love you guys, regardless of what your perspective may be on any given, not even tertiary issue, which we seem to, seem to make primary issues, if I can't demonstrate that I love you, then I really need to question and examine myself whether or not I be in the faith. What do you see? Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your grace and mercy for calling us out of darkness into your marvelous light. Recognizing that you have done that, that we may proclaim with our words and with our lives the excellencies of who you are. Father, I would stand here before this people as the first in line to stop and confess that so often I do not do this. That I lose my perspective and I put blinders over my own eyes and I walk and stumble. Father, I pray that you would implant the power of your word by your spirit into the hearts of your people. That it would affect great change in us. That you would move in each of us this morning to guard the unity of the spirit. That we would live with one another, not, not just attend church worship services together but that we would live life with one another as those who deeply love each other. May we not forget the truth that our ability to see is evidenced in how we love each other. I pray, God, that you would change me. We thank you for Jesus. And, Lord, we would ask that if anyone, whether they are in this room or whether they are watching by some other medium, if they have never come to Christ in repentance and faith, that in this moment, by your Spirit, you would open their eyes, that you would give them this light that they may see. And they would run to Jesus. Father, thank you for your mercy. Send us into this week people who can see. Father, we ask all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. Now unto him who is able to keep you from falling, to present you faultless before his glory with exceeding joy, to the only wise God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ our Lord, be glory, dominion, majesty, and authority before all time and now and forever. Amen. You're dismissed.